Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with major breaking news in our law and justice lead and an absolutely staggering financial penalty for Donald Trump. This afternoon, New York State Judge Arthur Ngoren ordered the former president and his companies to pay nearly $355 million for committing fraud. The judge found Trump submitted, quote, blatantly false financial data when he applied for loans, allowing him to get more favorable rates. There is one small victory in this ruling for Mr. Trump. The judge is not ordering the dissolution of the Trump organizations as prosecutors had asked for. Instead, Trump will face restrictions over the next three years when it comes to how he can conduct business. Let's get straight to CNN's chief legal affairs correspondent, Paul Reed. Paula, this is a lengthy ruling by Judge Engeron. And, and what, what, what else is he saying about Donald Trump and his companies? Well, here he is hitting Trump with his biggest punishment to date. You mentioned that over $350 million penalty, but let's look at some of the other things in this opinion. First, the judge bars Trump from serving as an officer or director of a New York corporation for three years. He also bars him from applying for loans from banks registered in New York for three years. But he does not dissolve the Trump business, Trump's business certificates for the Trump organization. He's backtracking there. This is something that he signaled he was going to do. But this is the so-called corporate death penalty, something the attorney general had sought. Now, some people might ask, well, why didn't he go that far? This is something that is rarely implemented in the state of New York. And the few times it has been, there has been a clear victim, someone who was clearly ripped off or deprived of their money. And that was one of the lines of defense here from the Trump legal team is that there was no victim. The banks, the insurance companies all got their money. But the judge is imposing what he describes as significant monitoring over the Trump organization. He is ordering the continuation of an independent monitor. This is someone who was actually installed back in 2022 to make sure that the company was in compliance with the law and regulations. That person will continue to be in place for another three years. And then the judge says that the company has to pay, it's, it's out of its own pocket, for an independent director of compliance. So the judge there installing multiple layers to ensure that the company continues to comply with the law and regulations. Remember, Jake, uh, this case is so personal to Trump, not only because it strikes at the heart of his identity as a successful New York businessman, but also because it involves his family. And penalties for his two adult sons, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump, both of them were found here liable for a host of civil fraud, both ordered to pay $4 million for their personal profits from the fraud, and then they are both barred from serving as an officer or director of any New York corporation for two years. And Jake, uh, Trump, his family, his lawyers, they took a very combative approach to this case, uh, regularly attacking the judge, uh, court staff, the attorney general, something that may be working for Trump in the court of public opinion, but clearly didn't work in the court, actual courtroom. And they are expected to appeal this ruling. How are they, the Trump team, reacting to the news? Have they issued any statements? 
Yes, and it sounds exactly what we heard from them every day at the courthouse. His, one of his attorneys, Alina Haba, also his legal spokeswoman, issued a statement saying, in part, this verdict is a manifest injustice, plain and simple. It is the culmination of a multi-year politically fueled witch hunt that was designed to take down Donald Trump. Before Letitia James ever stepped foot into the attorney general's office, countless hours of testimony proved that there was no wrongdoing, no crime, and no victim. Of course, the judge overseeing that case disagreeing with that, finding Trump liable for fraud back uh, last fall. And then, of course, there was this months-long trial where Trump uh, testified, as did three of his adult children. But they did take this very combative, very contentious approach to this whole case. Trump even violated a gag order that restricted him from attacking court staff. So while this may be uh, a political strategy to try to frame himself as the victim of an unfair legal system, we see in this case, and then just a few weeks ago in the E. Jean Carroll case, where he and Alina Haba also took a very combative approach, and a jury uh, awarded E. Jean Carroll over $80 million. So you see the combined penalties that he is facing suggest that, again, while this may be a great political strategy, it's a terrible legal one. Yeah, $83 million plus today's uh, $355 million were north of $400 million now. Paula Reed, thanks so much. CNN's Kara Scannell is here as well. And Kara, you've been following this case uh, closely from the very beginning. You were in the courtroom during this trial. What's your biggest takeaway from it all? I mean, the judge here is saying that he does, is not giving any credibility to the testimony of the Trumps in this trial. He's, you know, he's noting in his opinion that Donald Trump put himself out there as an expert in real estate, but finding here that, you know, that their posture this whole time, they've never admitted any mistakes or any uh, any wrongdoing. And so the judge really seems to be seizing on that in this opinion. You know, he, he notes by saying, you know, their complete lack of contrition and remorse borders on pathological, you know, really underscoring here that even when confronted with things that perhaps were obvious to this judge of being inflated, that they would stick, you know, hold their line and that they wouldn't acknowledge that. So the judge pointing out that. And, you know, also in this opinion, he's pointing, he's saying the need for him to take these steps is not even just limited to what occurred over that three-month trial and the testimony of all those witnesses. He's also saying that he's taking into account their past run-ins with authorities, including settlements involving Trump University, the Trump Foundation, which was wound down. Um, also, the corporate tax fraud trial, where the Trump Organization entities were convicted of tax fraud. That was a case brought by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. So he's showing that they have not taken any steps throughout all of their, or over the past several years, all of the run-ins. They're not doing anything to try to rehabilitate themselves. They don't even currently have a chief financial officer since their former chief financial officer pleaded guilty to tax fraud. So he's just pointing out throughout this how they have not tried to rehabilitate themselves in any way, knowing this investigation has been going on. And so that seems to me why we're seeing, you know, some of these um, these bans, why we're seeing the monitorship continue and why the judge really wants some independent eyes inside this company as a way to allow them to do business because, you know, as Paula noted, he is walking back this dissolution of the business certificate. So that is one benefit to the Trump organization. But certainly this is a significant penalty and significant amount of money that Trump is going to have to pay while he is facing other penalties. You know, all this judgment is coming um, back to him. He'd been someone who had, people had wondered if he could ever be held accountable. And now we're seeing both the E. Jean Carroll case, uh, this decision today, and now he is going to go to trial next month in the first criminal trial of a former president. So, you know, a lot of shifts in Trump on the legal front, although, of course, he is still very much campaigning for president. Jake. All right, Kara Scannell, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN anchor Caitlin Collins. And Caitlin, something 
that Kara just hit on is something that really stuck out to me as well, and to you as well. It's part of the Trump strategy. We've seen it again. That Trump doesn't acknowledge the truth even when it's right in front of him and everyone can see it. Yeah, and it's and you read this ruling, Jake, it's not saying just Trump, it's his family as well, because as we've been looking through this, you know, Ivanka Trump was also part of this. We talked about Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump. There's also mention of Ivanka Trump in here who who had you know, these interviews, but the judge, you know, said that while she was thoughtful and a poised witness, he said the idea that she couldn't recall certain details or facts of certain documents or or certain projects that she worked on, he says it's suspect and that the court found her inconsistent recall, depending on whether she was questioned uh, suspect, saying that the fact that she cannot recall is memorialized still in contemporaneous emails and in documents. And even though there was an absence of her memory on this, There are the documents here, and that is what the judge goes back to time and time again. And he's saying, you know, the documents don't lie. And what he was saying here, Jake, that you're referencing is the idea that no one who was questioned in this case really ever admitted any error. And he said, ever said, you know, I did that by mistake or here's my, you know, uh, acknowledgement of that. And that's a huge part of this ruling right at the end, kind of summing up why this ruling is what it is why it's as high as it is, why there are the repercussions that there are, because the judge here is saying that, you know, this Trump's not Bernie Madoff. He says, quote, they're accused of only inflating asset values to make more money. And the documents prove this over and over again. He says it's not a mortal, mortal sin. They didn't commit murder or arson. They did not rob a bank at gunpoint. Donald Trump is not Bernie Madoff. Yet, and this is the important part, defendants are incapable admitting their error of their ways. And instead, they adopt a see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil posture that the evidence belies. And the bottom line he's making there, Jake, is saying that if they did not have these repercussions that are in this ruling with this huge financial judgment, that they're worried that it would continue, that there would be no stopping because no one would admit the error of their ways, even though, you know, they talked about the Trump penthouse being three times the size that it was, which obviously it's not. And I think that really gets at the heart of this years long investigation that Trump pushed back on for so long. The judge here is basically saying he needs to be held accountable. We heard the statement from Trump's lawyer, uh, Alina Haba. Uh, How do you think Donald Trump is likely taking this news? We may hear from him, Jake. We were hearing earlier that he was expected to speak. It's not totally clear that he will now that they got this. I'll, I'll tell you that his team wasn't expecting this to be a judgment in their favor. Obviously, you saw the statement from Alina Haba. They will appeal this. They knew it was going to be ugly, Jake, because obviously they sat there in that courtroom They saw these documents. They saw the emails. Um, But I think when you take the big picture of this between the aging Carroll verdicts, now this, I mean, it's hurting Donald Trump where where it hurts him the most. And that's when it comes to his money. And I think it's a real question uh, of how he's going to be able to pay this. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Appreciate it. And in just a few hours, you can catch Caitlin on The Source. She's got a big interview coming up with 2024 presidential candidate Nikki Haley, who I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about. That's at 9 p.m. tonight. Only here on CNN. Can't wait to watch. The breaking news today, Donald Trump ordered to pay nearly $355 million in a civil fraud case against him. Next, we're going to bring in the lawyers, Laura Coates, Ellie Honig. They're going to help us analyze this major ruling. That's next. And we're back with the breaking news. Former President Donald Trump ordered to pay nearly $355 million in a civil fraud case against him and his businesses in New York. Joining us now to discuss, CNN anchor and chief legal analyst Laura Coates 
and former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Ellie, let's start with your reaction to this massive financial penalty. Are you surprised at all? Well, Jake, we knew this was going to be a big number, but wow, this is a mammoth verdict. And just for perspective here, the attorney general was asking for $370 million and she got almost all of that. And if you read this ruling, Jake, the judge is meticulous. He goes property by property, valuation by valuation, loan by loan, and gives us basically a line itemization of how he reached that number. Now, the bigger surprise, I think, is that the judge had signaled that he was going to impose the corporate death penalty. He was gonna revoke the business certificates he did not do that. Instead, what he did was install a monitor and put temporary several year suspensions on Donald Trump and his family members. So this could have been the death knell for the Trump organization. It's not quite that, but it's a huge hit. Laura, why do that? I mean, the New York attorney general wanted Trump to be banned from doing business in New York forever. Uh, the judge didn't agree, as Ellie noted. Is that so as to give fewer grounds for an appeal? Well, the corporate death penalty is usually rarely invoked and only when there is a real tangible victim. Remember, one of the biggest issues in this case was that the banks weren't complaining. Trump was suggesting that no one really was hurt here. And who, when it all as well as it ends well, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal was, according to this ruling, that they lied, that they were not truthful, that they did not credit their testimony. And in fact, they went beyond that. He talked about all the different times in which the Trump organization as an umbrella concept was not truthful. One of the reasons you impose a very strict penalty broadly is for deterrence and to get continuous injunctive relief to prevent someone from engaging in behavior they will engage in again. They went through this. But I found really a really fascinating point here. Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen was a witness in this case. Yeah. And everyone was wondering whether the judge would credit the testimony of Michael Cohen. Let me read for you just a portion of what he said. He talked about how um, he credited the testimony of Michael Cohen and talked about the animosity between the witness and the defendant, Trump, being palpable. But the court found his testimony credible, he says. Based on the relaxed manner in which he testified, the general plausibility of his statements, and most importantly, the way his testimony was corroborated by other trial evidence. He said that this fact finder does not believe that pleading guilty to perjury means that you can never tell the truth. Michael Cohen told the truth. What a significant moment to have that testimony credited above others and in conjunction with that also signals to you on appeal, it's very hard to undermine a credibility assessment by the fact finder, in this case, the judge. And Ali, now there's this monitor that will oversee the dissolution of Trump's businesses. She has access to all of their records. Does that mean Trump or his company could potentially face even more problems if she finds something in those records? Well, it could well be, Jake. The, the monitor here is a retired federal judge, former judge Barbara Jones, who specializes in high-profile, high-stakes matters. As one example, she was in charge of overseeing the NFL's response to the Tom Brady cheating scandal. So she understands high-stakes scenarios. If the goal here is get your company straight, get it back on its feet, there's no better person than Judge Jones to do that. But the flip side is, and Judge Jones has been working on this for some time now, she issued a report a couple weeks ago saying that in her initial review, she found several inconsistencies and sort of inexplicable numbers. So that certainly could lead to more trouble for the Trump organization. But if the goal is to rehabilitate the company, then this is the right person for it. Laura, do you think Trump has any chance of appeal? 
Well, before the Patriots fans come after us, it was the alleged cheating scandal by Tom Brady. Ellie Honig, thank you very much. <laughs> I don't know about Number that. Number two, when you think about the I don't want to appeal, I, I, I know I, I'm talking to the Eagles. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. Let's just say I'm right for a second. When you think about all the appeals, though, and going down this route, it's very difficult to try to get an appeal. It really is. Why? Because that's why there are painstaking factual credibility assessments. But I will say the, the volume and the scope of this ruling is particularly um, interesting to an appellate court, but while you have a temporary a temporary restraint against those uh, Trump and his sons and the organization, Alan Weisselberg and the former controller of the organization permanently banned. Remember, the controller was somebody who had a very weepy testimony talking about how he left the job because he was so tired of all of the legal woes of the corporation. He now is one person who, along with Weisselberg, can no longer serve in this function in New York permanently. Mm. And Ellie, uh, Trump's argument the entire time has been that there's no victim because he paid the banks back with interest. Mm -hmm. Did that affect the outcome here in any way? So the judge takes a very legalistic approach here, and he sort of addresses that. He says that, technically speaking, for the causes of action that were brought here, it doesn't really matter. Now, it is important to note, Jake, this is an atypical fraud case, because usually in a fraud case, you do have a victim. You have somebody who has lied to shareholders, to investors, to unsuspecting members of the public. And here, the people who were lied to, the entities who were lied to, were billion-dollar banks. They made loans. They were repaid with interest. And I do think that's one reason, and it's important to remember this in the bigger scheme, several different prosecutor's offices looked at this and declined to bring a criminal charge. And I'm speculating here, but from my experience as a prosecutor, I think that's an important consideration. Technically, this is enough that you could have brought a fraud charge under the criminal law, but it's really hard to stand in front of a jury and say, oh, the victims here are multi-billion dollar banks that made money. So that's a reality of the scenario here. All right, Ellie and Laura, thanks so much. Appreciate it. My next guest has built a, a resume digging into the finances of the former president and the Trump organization. He's done extensive investigations and will join me in just a moment. We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. We're back with the breaking news in our law and justice lead a very bad day in court for... Former President Donald Trump and judge in Trump's New York civil fraud trial ordered him to pay nearly $355 million. Trump is also, for the next three years, barred from participating in New York's real estate industry. He's also barred from serving as an officer or director of any New York company. Let's bring in Ross Butner. He's an investigative reporter for The New York Times. He's been breaking stories on Donald Trump's finances 
since 2016. Ross, let's start with your reaction to the judge's decision today. When you started reporting on Trump's taxes and his family's finances, did you ever think we would we would end up here? It always seemed like a possibility. When you look at the course of Donald Trump's life, he's clearly been sort of towing the line or, or getting close to the line of going over into fraud. Things that we found went to tax evasion that we were told uh, could have been criminally prosecuted if they were known at the time. And we're talking now 30, 40 years ago. Um, but he never really rose up to the level where those sorts of things mattered that much. So, again, we saw patterns that would suggest this was a possibility. But to think this day is, uh, is here, I think, and the magnitude of this and the potential impact on a former president, um, and a man who, who has fancied himself as one of the world's richest men for his entire life, I, I think is like a profound and, and possibly devastating. Yeah, uh, the judge has now barred Trump from doing business in New York State for three years. He's barred Trump's sons, Donnie and Eric, for the next two years. What do you think is going to happen to the Trump organization, which the judge did not order dissolved, we should note? Yeah, I, I, that's, a, that's a huge open question. I, I think that more than who's going to run the thing, look, the judge ordered that there's going to be a monitor in place, the same one who's been there for another three years. There's going to be a director of compliance in place. He's never had anyone like that. That's a very intrusive thing for him to make sure. And I think this will make sure that he doesn't reduce the business even more by pulling assets out to a point where he couldn't pay the judgment after an appeal. But the big thing, I think, is the, the number itself. When you combine this with the, the judgment in the E. Jean Carroll case, you're up to $440 million. And he, there's no evidence he has that much cash. When we looked at his tax returns, 20 years of his tax returns, we saw that his cash on hand had been shrinking since sort of the apprentice heyday in 2011, down to about, well, greatly shrinking to, through 2018. The attorney general found the same thing. That year he had maybe $44 million on hand. That's a lot of money, but you need money to run the business. And that's, if he has to pay any of these judgments, I think what's going to happen is they're going to have to start looking at selling some things or trying to get loans, which is going to be a great challenge for him as well. And those to me seem like the things that are real existential threats, the complications in his business. If you pull one of them out, it could bring the whole thing down. So let me just play devil's advocate for a second, because I'm sure there are skeptics out there who think, you know what, New York real estate folks, a lot of them inflate stuff, a lot of them lie, a lot of them are bullshit artists. Um, what's the truth of that? And, and how was Trump uh, above and beyond just run-of-the-mill kind of puffery on this sort of thing? Well, I, I can give you an example that's pretty clear that we, we uncovered that was 30 years ago, and this sort of thing continued. And that's that when he wanted to get some of his father's assets, right, um, and not have to pay an inheritance tax on it or a gift tax, they set up a shell corporation. And they started buying everything that his father bought for his empire through the name of this shell corporation. And that corporation served no purpose other than to, to pad those invoices by about 10 to 20 percent, pass the bill along to his father, and then spread the proceeds among Donald Trump and his and his siblings. That some years was a, a more than a million dollars a year, just in, an, in a, like a, an invoice padding scheme, straight out fraud, went undiscovered. That's very different from anything that we've ever heard or seen from big, reputable real estate firms in New York City. And I think even this 
like the way he got these loans was basically by assuring the bank that he didn't need the money, that he had two and a half billion dollars in assets, that he had $50 million in cash on hand at a minimum. And you see the story that emerges from the documents in this case is that he, he was having to commit fraud every year to meet those numbers to the point to get that cash number. He had to some years claim that he had access to cash that was an investment that he couldn't touch. It was not his cash, but he had to do that to meet that threshold to get these beneficial interest rates. And all of that became increasingly more important to him again as he lost money from entertainment and licensing deals over the last decade and became more and more cash poor. I think that's very different. And it's very unique to him to have cash from entertainment that you're then subsidizing sort of failing real estate uh, ventures and golf clubs with. And, and the degree to which this hurts him, uh, this gets him where it hurts most, which is like his, his ego and his, his sense of himself and this image he's created, this persona of being this super wealthy businessman. You have a judge here basically saying, and I'm paraphrasing, but he's basically saying, Donald Trump, you're a fraud. Yeah, I think that's a really hard blow. You have to remember that when Forbes first started their list of the richest Americans back in, I think, 83 or 84, Donald Trump right away started lobbying to get on that list. Independent. At that point in time, he didn't have much other than what his father had built. And he said his father's assets were his to try to get himself a place on that list. That's the course of his life, is trying to get himself in sort of the upper echelon of the richest Americans. I don't think he's ever actually been there, but it's core to his identity. It was core to the reason that he was put on The Apprentice. And then that show, The Apprentice, by this brilliant television producer, Mark Burnett, helped sort of reinvent that idea of him after his failures in the 90s, that he was a super rich, super successful guy. Obviously, that was very important to him running for office and getting elected. Um, and again, I think you're exactly right, Jake. That is such a core part of his identity, such so core to how he sees his life story, that this, this and the possible outcomes for, from it are, are really a heavy burden for him. So the ruling today, it's specific to New York State, but how might this judge's decision today impact Trump's business empire, which is global? Could it have a ripple effect? It could have a ripple effect. His, his empire is not quite as global as you think because a lot of those overseas things are just things where he's leasing his name to the place and then somebody else runs the operation and he gets cash up front. A lot of that cash has dwindled over the years because they're very front-loaded, those deals are. But what we noticed in looking at his tax returns is that there's a few properties that regularly make money. Uh, Trump Tower retail has regularly made money. Uh, the Nike store around the corner, he's made a lot of money on that. He's got, again, this passive investment in two office buildings that he can't really touch that has really subsidized a lot of what he's done. And then a lot of his other businesses have lost money over the years, and he's had to take money from one to pay off the other. Um, that creates a lot of problems. So if you have to sell off the more profitable businesses, those mm -hmm. would be the easiest ones, in order to pay off these big judgments, that could really, it's, a, it's kind of a Django game, right? You pull out the wrong log and the whole thing starts tumbling down. All right, Russ Butner, thank you so much for your insights. Really appreciate it. To another big story today, the death of Alexei Navalny. The Kremlin is denying any involvement, but will we ever really know? CNN senior correspondent Clarissa Ward has spent years investigating Navalny's case. She even helped produce an Oscar-winning documentary on him, and Clarissa will join me next. Also, right now, President Biden is in East Palestine, Ohio, the site 
of that toxic train derailment a year ago. He's getting briefed on recovery efforts, still more than one year after the crash. He's expected to give some remarks soon. We'll keep an ear out for that. We'll be right back. In our national lead, live pictures from East Palestine, Ohio. We are awaiting President Biden to speak in that town impacted by that toxic train derailment disaster that happened more than a year ago. We're going to bring that to you as soon as he starts talking. But first, CNN's Jason Carroll returned to East Palestine, where many residents still believe the water is unsafe to drink. The East Palestine President Biden is visiting is a much different place than it was a year ago. It is a town bitterly divided. There are those who say they're still suffering from adverse health effects from the derailment and others who say let Norfolk Southern and the EPA do their work so everyone can just move on. Drive around and it's also evident many here do not support the president and some question the timing of his visit. I don't know what took him so long to get here. Kathy Reese saw the contamination up close. This creek runs through her property. Last February, we found dead fish there. Reese says she no longer sees fish dying. In fact, she says she doesn't see many fish at all. What would your message to the president be? Give us more information, do more testing. These business owners in East Palestine have another message for Washington. Do more to get the Rail Safety Act passed. We see our own senators working together and we can't seem to get, once it gets to Washington, D.C., to get everybody on the same page. The bipartisan legislation created in the wake of the derailment calls for tougher regulations on the industry, but it has been stalled in Congress, partly because the industry is spending millions to stop efforts to regulate them. According to Open Secrets, a nonprofit that tracks lobbying efforts, the rail industry spent more than $24 million last year on lobbying. Norfolk Southern spent more than $2.3 million in 2023, up from the year before when the company spent $1.8 million. There are a lot of people from East Palestine who are frustrated by this, and so am I. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says the Rail Safety Act would mean new inspection and new safety requirements for railroads. So at the end of the day, do you think the Rail Safety Act will be passed or not? I think it will if we keep the attention, the focus, and the pressure on. When asked about lobbying efforts and the Rail Safety Act, Norfolk Southern pointed to reductions in its accident rates, also saying in a statement to CNN, our industry can make rail even safer, but it will take railroads, car owners, and manufacturers, and our customers. From day one, we've shared these views directly with our elected officials. We see a real opportunity for us to advance policy that will prevent accidents and improve collaboration with first responders. While the battle continues in Washington, in East Palestine, the EPA says its tests continue to show the air, soil, and water are safe. Work continues on local creeks, where some sheen has been spotted as of late. And now we're working with Norfolk Southern to develop a plan to remediate and restore those creeks. They can keep working. Kathy Ree says she'll keep drinking bottled water. I won't drink anything but. For how long? I don't know. I wish I knew. <laughs> President Biden speaking in East Palestine. Let's listen in. For this disaster and any long-term effects that are able to be identified as time goes on. 
not just here, but also in Darlington, Pennsylvania, where I just visited a few hours ago, an hour or so ago. Working with the state, we've tested the air, the water, the soil quality, deployed teams of health experts, provided emergency loans for local businesses. But it's not done yet. There's more to do. Today, I'm announcing the award of six National Institutes of Health grants to some of America's best research universities to study the short and long-term impacts of what happened here. That includes just north of here, Case Western University. So you'll have a top researcher with you as long as you need, as long as it has to go on. I also want to restate my support for the bipartisan rail safety lab bill. Senator Brown, Senator Vance, and the congressman from Pennsylvania and others require stronger protective measures when trains are carrying hazardous waste. Storage tank cars. We argued about this for years. They should be stronger. They should be able to survive crashes without exploding. Undated brakes that meet higher safety standards. The fact of the matter is there was a lot of discussion ahead of time before this occurred about the safety of the braking systems of many of these railroads or trains. More staffing on trains so that there are more people to respond immediately to a crash and to do so much more in race to the safety of transportation. And it's an important that the Senate follow the House and pass the tax reform bill, which makes sure that folks who don't get hit with a tax, a surprise tax bill, for compensation owed them by the railroad. That's not taxable income to them. We've got to make sure that that occurred, that no one is taxed or anything that is reimbursed or received from Norfolk Southern. It's not right. I support the tax, this tax reform bill, and we got to get it done. All told, we have done in one year what would typically take many years, and we're going to keep going. Like I said, your compassion and resilience of the leadership of this community and the people of this community, the courage of your firefighters, law enforcement officers, first responders who run in danger to save others. They deserve the care and resources we owe them to be followed and their health needs followed as well. Because that's what we do. It doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican or Independent. What matters is we're all Americans. Everyone. Everyone. We look out for one another. We leave no one behind. And we come back stronger than before. That's what you're doing here. That's what's happening right here in this community. That's what's going on downtown in your parks as well. You're now, your downtown's reopened and the parks are reopened. Students were frustrated. Opposing schools wouldn't travel here for sports events. But now you're playing home games again, finally. That's pride. That's also progress. But we have other obligations. And that's here is to stay here as long as it takes to get everything done and be sure no one's left behind. In moments like this, let's remember who we are. We're the United States of America, for God's sake. We have obligations to one another. There's nothing beyond our capacity when we do it together. And we're going to stay here and do it together as long as it takes. May God bless you all and may God protect our troops. We have a lot to do. Now, let me turn this over to the EPA Administrator, Michael Regan, and he'll have a few things to say as well. Michael? 
All right, President Biden visiting East Palestine, Ohio for the first time since last year's train derailment. He said that Norfolk Southern failed. He called the derailment an act of greed and said that it was preventable. He told the residents of East Palestine that the derailment would not come to define them. CNN's Jason Carroll is also in East Palestine and has been covering this story closely for a year. Uh, Jason, your reaction? Well, a couple of things that I think that some of the residents here wanted to hear noted noted that uh, the president said that he will stay here, that the administration will keep their eye on this. He said for as long as it takes, saying that no one will be left behind. Also talking about that grant that he said is going to be going out there. He said that that grant will, will cover both a short-term and a long-term sort of study on the impact of what has happened here in East Palestine. So those are certain some of the words that residents wanted to hear. But uh, we also have to say that there are a number of people here, Jake, who feel as though the president showed up too little, too late. As his motorcade drove by our location here, a number of people uh, lined the road here and shouted their displeasure at the president's motorcade, some of them shouting obscenities. But again, the president saying that, uh, that his administration is going to stick this out and that they will be looking at East Palestine, not just in the short term, but in the long term as well. Jake. All right, Jason Carroll in East Palestine for us. Thank you so much. In our other world, uh, in our other major story, in our world lead Kremlin critic, Alexei Navalny is dead at 47. That's according to the Russian prison service. Russia, of course, the Kremlin itself, Putin, they all deny any involvement, but they're, of course, the ones who sent him to that penal colony. After recovering from the 2020 poisoning, suspected to have been ordered by Putin, Navalny returned to Russia. He has been in poor health. He spent the last few weeks in this Siberian prison camp north of the Arctic Circle. He slept on a newspaper. He had only 10 minutes to eat his meals. Let's get right to CNN's Clarissa Ward in London and Nick Payton Walsh in Munich, where the Munich Security Conference is going on. And Clarissa, you were part of the CNN investigation. Uh, you interviewed Navalny. It took months of painstaking reporting to present proof that Russia's government was involved. Given, given that, do you think we will ever know exactly how Navalny died uh, at all? I have my doubts, Jake, because there are some really key differences. Right after Alexei Navalny collapsed in August of 2020 on that airplane from Tomsk to Moscow after being poisoned with Novichok, his team, who were still on the ground in Siberia, found out about it. They went into his hotel room. They began furiously collecting evidence. He was then medevaced a couple of days later to the Caritas Hospital in Berlin. And there, German doctors were able to do extensive testing. They were the ones who were able to determine that he had been poisoned with this lethal nerve agent, Novichok. Then you had Christo Grozev, this extraordinary investigator with Bellingcat, uh, who worked with a team of us at CNN, going through databases, going through flight manifests, and gradually he really was able to put together a, a clear and coherent picture of this team of FSB operatives who had been following Navalny for many years. But in this instance, how on earth we could expect for there to be any kind of serious autopsy, any kind of transparency from the Russian penal colony services, uh, from the Russian government about exactly what happened to Navalny. Um, I don't think anyone is expecting that. So I think there will likely remain a large question mark over how exactly Alexei Navalny died today. 
The broader question, though, of who was responsible for his death is much easier to solve. Uh, and we have heard many of his followers, leaders, President, U.S. President Joe Biden saying unequivocally that it is the responsibility of President Vladimir Putin and the Russian state in whose custody he was being held. Absolutely. And Nick, you were at the Munich Security Conference today uh, where not only uh, Vice President Harris condemned what happened, but Navalny's wife, now widow, Yulia Navalna, she made a surprise appearance uh, and she spoke even. I mean, I can't even imagine the circumstances, but what was her message? Yeah, I mean, obviously a, a horrific moment for her, but one that she met here, referred to as a surprise guest, a surprise I'm sure none of the audience ever wanted to hear, how she met the moment with extraordinary courage and composure. Here's what she had to say about what she believes, she hopes, might follow. I want them to know that they will be punished for what they have done with our country, with my family, and with my husband. They will be brought to justice, and this day will come soon. Now, it may never be that indeed Vladimir Putin faces justice for any involvement he may later be proven to have had in this. But there is one thing I think maybe the Kremlin did not expect, if you're your most generous assessment of this, that they failed in their duty of care to keep Navalny alive. Well, the effect today has been to take a security conference that was likely to be caught in a cloud of doubt about the U.S.'s persistent, uh, likely assistance of NATO in the face of the threat against, uh, from Russia after the president, uh, former President Donald Trump's recent comments. Instead, uh, the audience galvanized into essentially seeing quite how clear and present and immediate the threat of Russia was. Uh, the fact of limited funding slowed down for Ukraine from the United States, now more, furthermore in the agenda, uh, and a real sense of urgency, I think, where previously many were concerned uh, this conference may be mired in confusion about quite where this alliance stood, Jake. And Clarissa, uh, people have already been detained attending vigils for Navalny across Russia, according to a group that monitors uh, Russian repression. How are Russians reacting to his death? Well, Jake, as you say, inside Russia, the response appears to be quite muted, and that is because of the obvious reason. The Moscow prosecutor's office came out and said, do not take to the streets. Uh, we have heard from that monitoring group in Russia that at least 73 people have already been detained. And yet we still have seen images of extraordinary, courageous Russian citizens lining up silently, carrying red roses, many of them with tears in their eyes, and quietly laying them down um, at a memorial for Alexei Navalny. That seems to be the only level uh, of sadness or grief that Russians are able to express publicly at the moment. When you talk to Russians, particularly those who are outside of the country, they are, many of them, millions of them, in a deep state of grief, in a deep state of disbelief. What does this mean for the future of Russia's opposition movement, which quite frankly now appears to be in tatters? But there were also some positive words from Mikhail Zygar, for example, who is a Russian journalist also in exile. And he wrote something that I thought was quite moving. He said, Navalny now will truly become the founding father of the new Russia, and that the memory of Navalny and the example that he set can be around 
rallying cry and an inspiration to people going forward and reminding people that one of the key attributes of Alexei Navalny was an indefatigable optimism, which he asked that all Russians across the world and inside the country who are feeling such grievous loss in this moment try to adhere to. Jake? All right. Clarissa Ward and Nick Payton Walsh on a somber day. Thanks to both of you. Navalny is by far not the first critic of the Kremlin or Vladimir Putin to just somehow end up dead. In 2006, former Russian agent turned Kremlin critic Alexander Litvinenko died after his green tea was spiked with poison at a hotel bar in London. That same year, Russian war critic Anna Politkovska was shot and killed outside her Moscow apartment. 2009, Russian lawyer Sergei Magnitsky died in prison. A Russian human rights report found evidence that he'd been beaten the day he died. In 2012, Russian financier Alexander Perpelcheny died suddenly while on a jog near his home in London. Toxicology experts later found traces of a rare poison in his system. In 2013, Russian businessman Boris Bereskovsky was found dead on the bathroom floor of his home in the UK. In 2015, former Soviet deputy prime minister Boris Nemtsov was shot dead while on a walk with his girlfriend. And that's just a few. Look for a special encore of the Oscar-winning CNN film that follows Navalny's life as an outspoken opposition leader, anti-corruption crusader, and assassination target. The film is called Navalny. It airs tomorrow night at 9 o'clock Eastern, right here on CNN. We're going to go back to the big story this hour. A judge's ruling ordering to pay nearly $355 million ahead the fallout of this case that, that hits at the heart of Trump's image as a successful billionaire and his inflation of his own worth. Stay with us. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, warnings in Russia in the wake of the death, if not murder, of Alexei Navalny. Vladimir Putin is shutting down potential protests. He's issuing threats to those who dare to demonstrate what could have been an assassination. Coming up, reaction to it all from Trevor Reed, a U.S. Marine who also spent some time in a Russian prison. Plus, Comments you may have missed this week from Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, the cozy relationship he wants to keep up with a world leader who also is responsible for brutal human rights violations. And leading this hour, a major court ruling against Donald Trump. He's been ordered to pay nearly $355 million in a civil fraud case. He's been banned from doing business in the state of New York for three years. And the co-defendants in this case include his adult sons, Donnie and Eric. Let's get straight to CNN's chief legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed. Paula, what did the judge say in his ruling about Trump and his businesses? Well, here, Jake, Trump's combative and defiant legal strategy has yielded yet another massive loss in New York state court. Now, in addition to those hundreds of millions of dollars in penalties, the judge has also barred Trump from serving as an officer or director of a New York corporation for three years. He also cannot apply for loans from banks registered in New York for three years. Now, the only Good news, and as a small g, is that he was not issued the corporate death penalty. Here, the judge backtracked and is not going to dissolve Trump's business certificates for the Trump organization. 
Some people might wonder, well, why not? This is a very rare penalty in the state of New York. And in the few instances where it has uh, been implemented, there has been a clear victim. And one of the key lines of the Trump defense here is that there was no victim. No one was harmed. Everyone made money. Uh, everyone went home happy. So that is likely part of why he did not issue the corporate death penalty. But instead, the judge is installing some serious monitoring inside the Trump organization. He installed a monitor back in 2022. This is an independent monitor who just monitors the organization to make sure that they're complying with laws and regulations. That monitor, according to today's opinion, will continue for another three years. And then the Trump organization has to pay for what is described as a new compliance officer. And of course, Jake, one of the things that makes this case so personal for the former president is not only that it strikes the heart of his identity as a businessman, but it's also about his family. And when it comes to his two adult sons, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric, the judge found them both liable for fraud, ordered them each to pay $4 million, and has barred them from serving as an officer or director of a New York corporation for two years. Now, it's also interesting, uh, the judge also talked about Ivanka Trump, who testified uh, in this case. He described her testimony as thoughtful and articulate, but said that her repeated memory lapses about details of deals that she worked on were, quote, suspect. Now, throughout this case, Trump and his lawyers and some of his children, at least two of his children, took a very combative, uh, defiant, remorseless approach to this case. And we can see now this the result. It has yielded a verdict that will likely drain his coffers. It's not even clear that he can actually pay these penalties, even if his mm -hmm. business technically survives. And Paula, last hour, you brought us the statement from Trump attorney Alina Haba. Now we're hearing from Trump's main lawyer on the case. What is he saying? So here, Chris Kyes has issued a statement saying, quote, the court today ignored the law, ignored the facts, and simply signed off on the attorney general's manifestly unjust political crusade against the front-running running, front running candidate for the president of the United States. President Trump will, of course, appeal and remains confident the appellate division will ultimately correct the innumerable and catastrophic errors made by a trial court untethered to the law or to reality. Now, if you notice in this opinion, it's over 90 pages. It's incredibly detailed. Clearly, the judge is, is anticipating this appeal, preserving uh, the record for those appeals. And just a moment ago, we got another statement from the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, laying out sort of a contrast to the Trump statement and explaining why, you know, most ordinary people understand why you can't lie to insurance companies or banks. She says, quote, when powerful people cheat, to get better loans, it comes at the expense of honest and hardworking people. Everyday Americans cannot lie to a bank to get a mortgage, to buy a home, and if they did, our government would throw the book at them. There simply cannot be different rules for different people. And as the Trump family, the Trump organization contemplates uh, today's verdict, they have a much more serious case coming in just a few weeks. The first criminal trial against former President Trump brought by the Manhattan District Attorney. And Jake will be watching to see if they continue to take this more combative, aggressive approach. Certainly looked yesterday like that's what Trump is going to do, but it's coming at an enormous cost. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. With us now to discuss Gene Rossi, former federal prosecutor and former assistant U.S. attorney uh, in the Eastern uh, District uh, of Virginia. And Jamie Gangel is also here uh, with us. And Gene, uh, New York Attorney General Letitia James was seeking $370 million. Right. She got almost all of that. Yes. Um, are you surprised by the judge's ruling? No, and I'll tell you why. On page 88 of this opinion, it lists 
that this is not their first rodeo. So I think what drove this judge more than anything, in my humble opinion, is the list of settlements and frauds that the Trump organization, Donald Trump et al., committed since uh, 2013. It's on page 88, and he calls it, this is not their first rodeo. Hmm. So I think this other crimes evidence gave the judge consolation and and buttressed his argument uh, as to uh, why there was such massive fraud. The other, the idea being... The, these people have been accused of fraud before. And, They've been slapped on the wrist. Right, and we need the to take charity, action. The charity, the foundation. And I think he got to the point where enough is enough. And I just want to say this. I did fraud cases and tax cases for Department of Justice. There were three books in this case. And it's not really described, but looking at it. There's the book they gave to the, the, the set of books they gave to the banks. You raise assets lower liabilities. The second book is the one you give to tax authorities where you try to deflate your assets and increase your losses. And then there's that third beautiful book. That's the book that has the real data. And he's talking about that in all his description of the uh, witnesses, but that's the punchline at the end. They had three sets of books over many years and they defrauded everything. And I wanna add one thing. He calls their defense that no one got harmed he says they crowed that the borrowers did not hurt the bank, that they did not hurt the banks. Mm-hmm. He's rejecting that argument that there was no harm. Hmm. Very, very interesting. Jamie Gangale, uh, let me turn to you. Let's start with the impact this is going to have on, on Donald Trump, not, not as a candidate or as a former president, but as a, as a man, as a, as a person who sees himself uh, as this wildly successful businessman. And basically, the judge has just said to him before the entire world and his family, you're a fraud. It's not going to go over well, which will not surprise anyone. Look, this goes to the heart of how Trump has sold himself to the American people. This is his brand, whether he's a millionaire or a billionaire. We're not exactly clear about that. But uh, this does hurt. Michael Cohen, who worked for him Uh, told me last year, of all the cases, this is the one that will upset him the most Mm. because it goes to the brand. $350 million is a lot of money. On top of that, you have the $83 million. He's been uh, ordered to pay uh, E. Jean Carroll for defamation. That's the woman that he uh, sexually uh, assaulted. Do we know if he has more than $400 million in cash that he can can pay as penalties here? We don't know. Let's add also New York State, I believe, has 9% interest. So I saw a number this could go up to 400 million. Uh, As we say, this is real money. And my understanding is that New York State, like the federal cases, he'll have 30 days either to post a bond, give him some money, or ask the court for a stay on that. I, I would find it hard to imagine that he has this much cash. Yeah, and, and Gene, the lawsuit alleged that Trump and his co-defendants committed fraud because, as you noted, they were they were inflating assets on Absolutely. financial statements to yep. get better terms on commercial real estate loans and insurance policies and downplaying uh, any liabilities. One argument from Trump's lawyers uh, was essentially, look, this is how real estate works. Um, why did the judge disagree? I think the judge said um, that if we allow this conduct to continue, then everybody in New York City and America is going to do what they do. We have to put a stop to it. And I was a prosecutor. I didn't have defendants come in and say, I I shouldn't be prosecuted because everybody's doing it. 
you have to draw the line. But I go back to page 88 of this opinion. Mm -hmm. The judge didn't have a hard time drawing the line because they got so many slaps on the wrist. Yeah. He said, I can't take this anymore. We have to stop them. And, and ja Jamie, we should note the judge did not impose what's called the corporate death penalty, right. ordering, uh, taking away his business license and ordering uh, that the Trump organizations need to be dissolved. So it, it does sound like the, the Trump family is going to have to let someone else run or monitor very closely uh, the businesses. Um, what's your take on that? So I, I think uh, heads are exploding in, in the <laughs> Trump family because this is a family business. Yeah. They like control. The words independent monitor, uh, independent director of compliance, that is not going to make anybody yeah. happy. All right, Jamie Gengel, Gene Rossi, thanks to both of you. Appreciate you. this ruling is coming. Just as many Americans are starting to think about the 2024 presidential race, not to mention their taxes, what political impact this ruling in all of Trump's legal cases might have? We're going to talk about that next. And we're back with our breaking news. Former President Trump has been ordered to pay nearly $355 million in his New York civil fraud case. Let's discuss with our panel, Adrian Elrod, how you think Trump is going to react to this bad news for him? Oh, I don't think he's going to act positively at all or react positively at all, Jake. I mean, we've seen the way he's reacted in some of the other cases against him. Uh, but, you know, look, I'm looking at this from the standpoint of how are the voters going to react? How is the average swing independent voter that will ultimately decide this election? How are they going to react? And I think when you look at all of these legal cases stacked up against Trump, from E. Jean Carroll to this case, to the trial in Georgia to the overall trial that's coming up um, in a couple months. Uh, it all stacks up not looking very favorably toward Trump when it comes to his reelection chances. Alice, how do you think Republican officials are going to react? Is this just going to be more of the, the witch hunt refrain? Absolutely. And we were already hearing that from, from Trump's attorneys, that this is injustice and a witch hunt and weaponization of the legal system. And Republicans that uh, support Donald Trump, which is most of them, will rally behind him and continue uh, that dialogue. And look, this is plain and simple. Donald Trump's brand as a successful businessman built him up. And his brand as hostile under fire brought him down in this case. And the judge repeatedly said that his lack of contrition and remorse is a big factor in his decision-making process. But the fact that he went so high with this number is really going to uh, frustrate Trump's base and really embolden them to buy into uh, the baseless claims that all of these legal issues are part of this big witch hunt. They're not looking at each of these cases individually and each of the outcome individually. They are buying into Trump's uh, lie that all of this is part of an overzealous prosecution and justice system that is clearly out to get him because he is the main challenger uh, to Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. And this will further embolden uh, Republicans. I'm not sure it's going to be so uh, helpful in the general election, but it's certainly going to embolden the base right now. And Gloria, uh, Trump claimed his Mar-a-Lago resort was worth more than a billion dollars. Right. The judge says, says this was fraudulent because first it would require him to list Mar-a-Lago as a private residence, which the deed prohibits. And, and second, a $1 billion valuation is 400% more expensive than the most expensive <laughs> private residence in the United States of America. So that's a classic Trump exaggeration right. in business form. And it really speaks to 
to who he is and, and why the judge you, said you're not going to get away with it this time. Exactly. You know, this is a man who uh, went into his father's business, which was in Queens, and made a name for himself, taking it into Manhattan, and was kind of the golden boy. And that's how he has always seen himself, as somebody who can make multi-millions of dollars, and nobody can ever challenge that. And what's happened with this case is that it looks like, in many ways, it was a house of cards. And, you know, he has testified publicly that he was sitting on $400 million in cash. Let's see, as you were talking to Jamie before, whether he has that money to pay what he now has to pay. And this goes to his whole persona and his the way he views, not, not only the way he wants the public to view him, but it's the way he actually views himself. He doesn't want anyone to be his boss. They've, uh, they've said that a monitor, a babysitter, has to continue to babysit the business, and he doesn't want anybody to have any control, and they haven't paid attention to the, to the one they've had there in the meantime, the judge said. So, you know, this really, this strikes at his very heart, like... This is his business, and nobody's going to tell him what to do, and nobody's going to tell him he did anything wrong. So, Adrian Elrod, uh, Trump and his associates have been saying for a long time that, you know, Joe Biden is behind this, even though there's obviously no evidence that the Biden administration had anything to do with this. This is brought by the New York Attorney General. Um, the, the case did not have the outcome Trump wanted. He plans to appeal. What would you advise Democrats to do about this case, if anything? Just let the story speak for itself, or should they seize on it, uh, talk about what a fraud he is? What, what, what are the politics of this, do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, Jake, as you, you, know, you were there with us covering the 2016 campaign, we had to really uh, make the case that Donald Trump was a fraud. We had to you know, lift up the opposition research and get it out there because not everyone realized how fraudulent he was. This is a totally different ballgame. It's baked in. People know. I mean, Alice is right. I don't know that it's really going to impact his base, but I think it's certainly going to impact voters when it comes to the general election. If I were Democrats, and I think this is what you're seeing a lot of Democrats do, I would just sit back and, 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 and not get engaged in this. I think the Biden campaign has been incredibly effective by letting uh, the court speak for itself. They're not getting making this political at all. Uh, you know, what what the judges are ruling, what what Tish James is doing, uh, you know, what's happening in Georgia, that is all speaking for itself. And ultimately, voters will decide whether or not this is somebody that they want back in the White House. My guess is, again, when it comes to those narrow states that will decide this election, Jake, the answer is they don't want them back. Alice, uh, Trump could, in theory, pay this $355 million fine using funds from his leadership pack, Save America, since, the, since Save America is operated separately from authorized campaign committees. Um, we should note that other legal troubles, he has a lot, have whittled that fund down from about $50 million to about $5 million, according to his latest legal filing. Um, he will keep fundraising off of this legal loss, no doubt. Um, but how will he balance the need to pay for his legal bills versus the need to pay for his campaign uh, and also not be seen as somebody who uses his campaign donors to pay for these legal excesses? Well, Jake, first, I, I would, wouldn't classify it as much as using campaign donors. These are willing Republicans that are more than happy to donate their money for his legal fees specifically, because they do believe, as he has said, that he is being targeted by overzealous prosecutors that are doing the bidding for Joe Biden. And they are more than happy to continue to donate for those legal fees. And, and look, 
He will continue to campaign uh, as he has been doing. And a big part of funding that is off of these legal issues. He, he as soon as one of these uh, rulings is handed down, he's putting out uh, email solicitations for for contributions. And we all know that every time he goes in or out of a courtroom, he's making a statement based on the fact that he is the he is the victim of, of, of a witch hunt. And he will continue to do what he's done to date. And a lot of Republicans are more than happy to donate but, to that. But you know, I think the question is, what does this do to the big donors? What does this do to the Wall Street funders? Do they want to stay away from this because it's too hot to touch uh, in a general election? We'll have to see because right now, they're not raising the money they want to raise. And the big donors could be a big help. But we'll have to see if that materializes. All right. Thanks to our panel. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the stunning, shocking news to which we woke up this morning. Putin critic Alexei Navalny found dead at his prison. Video shows Navalny just last night, just hours before his death. There he is on screen. I'm going to talk about this case with U.S. Marine Trevor Reed, who was also once a Russian prisoner in a horrific prison. Uh, he'll join us here next in the studio. In our world lead, Russian opposition figure and outspoken Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny has died, according to the Russian prison service. They say Navalny collapsed in prison after a walk. There is video of Navalny appearing in court and looking well. This is from just yesterday. CNN's Matthew Chance takes a look now at what we know and the reaction from around the world. In his last appearance, just a day before he died, Alexei Navalny seemed in good spirits even teasing the judge at the court hearing where he appeared by video conference. Your Honour, I will give you my personal account number so that you can send me money from your huge salary, he said. I'm running out thanks to your decisions, he joked. The prison authorities say he collapsed on Friday after his daily walk. State media says emergency teams called to his penal colony tried to revive him for more than half an hour. Still, Navalny's family are waiting for confirmation of his death. If it is true, I want Putin and all his staff, everybody around him, his government, his friends. I want them to know that they will be punished for what they have done to our country, to my family and to my husband. But Navalny's demise sends yet another chilling message to the Russian opposition. A few braving restrictions to lay flowers amid widespread shock. The country's most prominent opposition figure has been silenced. What calms me is that if he really died, his death will make his supporters a bit stronger says this woman in St. Petersburg. When I learned about it, I was horrified and cried, says another. Now I just want to scream, she But with Russian presidential elections just weeks away, Vladimir Putin seems unfazed by the death of another prominent critic. He's visiting an industrial facility in the city of Chelyabinsk, leaving his spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, to field the awkward questions. According to the rules, all necessary investigations are underway, he told reporters, later suggesting that much international reaction to the death is unjustified. But for many, blame is already being laid 
at the Kremlin's door. Pro-Navalny protests are banned in Russia, but in neighbouring Georgia and elsewhere, mourners are turning out to pay their respects and to voice their anger. Putin die, they're chanting, but it is his critics, it seems, whose lives are snatched away. Well, Jake, tonight the Russian authorities are actually moving to arrest lots of those people who have been laying flowers out of respect uh, for that opposition figure, Alexei Navalny. OVN, uh, which is a group that monitors Russian repression, says at least 73 people have been arrested in cities from Moscow to St. Petersburg to Murmansk in the north and Nizhny Novgorod elsewhere which gives you an indication of just how widespread support and sympathy is uh, for this figure. Jake, back All to right, you. Matthew Chance in London for us. Thanks so much. With me now to discuss former Russian prisoner, former U.S. Marine Trevor Reed. He was wrongfully detained in Russia for 985 days. Trevor, thanks for joining us. What was your first thought when you heard that Alexei Navalny had died in prison? I knew, uh, I knew immediately that, uh, you know, the Kremlin had, had probably assassinated him. Um, not sure how they did that, whether that was with, you know, chemical weapons like they had attempted before or they used some other means. But without a doubt, they've, they've killed them. You were, you were held in a Russian prison for 985 days, much of it in a remote work camp. Um, do people drop dead suddenly in these prisons? Uh, you know, that's an interesting question. They do uh, drop dead, but... That's due to, to neglect. Um, you know, a lot of people are starving there, like I was, uh, in solitary confinement. You're under, like, horrible conditions. They're going to refuse you medical treatment, things like that. But as far as, um, you know, I saw a video with Navalny that was really recent, and he looked healthy. Uh, I don't think there's any way that he, you know, suddenly died of, of medical issues. Yeah, Navalny's mom said she had visited him just this week, I think on the 12th. Um, and uh, there's video of it right there. Uh, he was in good spirits, she said, good health. Um, and, and well, this, is, this video is actually from yesterday in, in court. Do you think it's possibly it's possible for Navalny's health to change this fast? Or you, you clearly seem to think like the Kremlin, somebody in the Kremlin ordered this to happen. Sure. Yeah, I think uh, this didn't happen by accident. This wasn't, uh, you know, a medical issue, something like that. This is clearly ordered by the Kremlin high up, probably from Putin himself. And one of the indicators of that is the fact that they had moved Navalny to a different prison camp about two months ago. So, you know, one one part of that is they may have moved him over there because of the upcoming election. They wanted him out of out of sight, out of mind. Um, but, you know, I think it's a lot more clear now after his death that the reason that they moved him there was so that they could, you know, assassinate him. Yeah, they moved him to Siberia, uh, north of the Arctic, I think. You were a wrongfully detained American prisoner in Russia. Uh, Navalny was a wrongfully detained Russian a prisoner in Russia. Do you think that you two were treated differently? I think uh, in Navalny's case, you know, he was a, a per person of some importance there. Um, and at that time, you know, the Kremlin was was taking care to try to make it look like they weren't, uh, you know, this monster that that we've clearly seen that they are now. Um, 
I think now, you know, all, all bets are off and the Kremlin is going to uh, eliminate any type of opposition that they have with, you know, with no no hesitation. I think the, the days of them pretending to, to be a, a good guy are gone. What do you make of the fact that there is a, the left and its flirtation with communism in Russia is, that's been going on since the beginning of the Soviet Union? Um, but what do you make of the right uh, in this country um, doing all this bidding for Putin, whether requested or not, um, painting over how repressive it is, comparing what happened to Navalny to the trials that Donald Trump is going through when obviously they couldn't be more different and Donald Trump has due process, is living in a mansion, flies his private jets, et cetera, et cetera. What, what do you make of that when you hear that kind of rhetoric from the right? Frankly, uh that's pretty shocking to me. It's not anymore because that's become commonplace, but from a party of hardliners like Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, one of the hardest presidents on the Soviet Union ever, to have that party degrade uh, to the level where it's just pushing Kremlin talking points, Kremlin propaganda was, you know, uh, surprising to me, but also upsetting because it kind of dishonors all of the the Republican presidents that we had in the past, you know, true conservatives who cared about the national of the security of the United States more than anything. And I think that uh, that's rapidly disappearing from from the right in politics today. And I think that that needs to be fixed immediately. Trevor Reed, always good to see you, my friend. Thanks so much for dropping by. Thanks Appreciate for having it. me. And CNN's going to run a special encore presentation of the documentary film Navalny. It's a powerful, important film. It won an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to air it tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. Coming up next in the lead, inside some of the biggest scandals of our time, and one man often called in as a crisis manager. Stay with us. In our politics league, covering national politics and politicians for nearly 30 years, I've seen all kinds of political scandals ranging from the silly to the consequential. I don't think you have ever seen them covered quite like this, though. Join me Sunday night for the premiere of two back-to-back -back episodes from my brand new CNN original series. It's called The United States of Scandal. Here's a preview of uh, what you'll see Sunday night. I did the same as them and nothing worse. What drives powerful people to break the rules? I've never done an interview about this ever in my life. And until today. And what happens when they get caught? I didn't feel like it was sexual either. You didn't? No, I did not. Because it sounds like there was an attraction. You said, you're so hot. That was I know, I know. And most importantly, why do they risk everything to do it? Over six episodes, CNN's new original series, United States of Scandal, will try to peel back the headlines of some of the country's most sensational political scandals. The governor disappeared and didn't leave anybody else in charge. Full disclosure, I was friendly with Mark and Jenny Sanford. There are some scandals we never saw coming, such as when the governor of South Carolina dropped off the face of the earth so he could fly to Argentina to have an affair. When it was proven true, I felt dumb. I felt duped for naively believing that I ever knew Mark Sanford the person. And we will revisit scandals that you think you know. I engaged in an adult consensual affair with another man. Giving you an up-close perspective. In 2004, the Democratic governor of New Jersey, Jim McGreevy, stepped into a 
press room just like this and became an overnight sensation. I have decided the right course of action is to resign. We were also quick to embrace the headline that we may have forgotten to dig a little deeper because the reason why Jim McGreevy resigned is a lot more complicated than we remember. I didn't wake up and say, you know, I'm going to be deceptive for the sake of deceiving. And we'll speak to some of the key players in scandals that were so explosive the fallout did not just topple careers. I'm here to tell you right off the bat that I am not guilty of any criminal wrongdoing. People were sent to prison. So, Governor, thanks for doing this. Thank you. So you've been out of prison now for almost two years. A little over two years. Such as former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich, convicted on fraud and conspiracy charges, including trying to sell Obama's open Senate seat. I guess one question I have is, why? Why did he do it? Look, I had 2,896 days in prison to ask myself a thousand questions, including that. But you know what? What's the alternative? I have all my st staff and lawyers, we all go to saunas and get naked and talk to each other so nobody's got wires on them. <laughs> Joining us now, someone who knows his way around a political scandal. He worked as special counsel to President Bill Clinton, Lanny Davis. Lanny, I, I can't um, wait to talk to you about all the scandals you've worked on. But first, I have to get your reaction to today's ruling. Donald Trump ordered to pay $355 million in the civil fraud trial. This is on top of the $83 million he's been ordered to pay to Eugene uh, Carroll. Will this have any impact on him politically, do you think? Probably not in his base, but this country's presidential elections are decided between the 40-yard line, so about 20% of the electorate are swing voters, and it could well have an effect. Do you think Donald Trump has changed anything about scandals and how people respond to him? The scandals I cover in the series took place between 2000 and 2015, before Trump. Um, has he rewritten the rules? As a political candidate, he has because he doesn't listen to the advice of a crisis manager like myself, which is to tell the truth. That advice wouldn't sit well with him since, in my opinion, he doesn't really care about truth versus the opposite. So I don't think so. Your advice, I quote it all the time, which is, it's three-pronged, and you actually wrote a book, I think, with this title, but correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it's get it all out, get it all out on your own terms, get it all out early. Is that right? Yes. What's the name of the book? The name is Truth to Tell, and it's, uh, that mantra is the crisis management counterintuitive advice to somebody who's made mistakes. And that is, if you've made the mistakes, the longer you wait to get it all out yourself, the more damage you do to yourself. The one exception is if you've committed a crime, right. and it's up to your criminal defense lawyer to say, don't speak because you may go to jail. If you could go back, you're, you're most famous for helping Bill Clinton handle the Lewinsky uh, affair, um, and he survived, and he stayed as president, and, you know, he's a successful post-president, et cetera. If you could go back and give him any advice, would it be to have done what you just said, which is admit it all early and just own up to it? And do you think that would have prevented any of the problems he had later on? Well, it might have, but wisdom is hindsight. In the case of Bill Clinton, he left office on his last day despite all of the pain that he went through and personal apologies that he made publicly after the event, he ended up with a popularity job approval rating of 65%. So he'd probably say that he inflicted pain on himself and his relationship with his family. And then he ultimately apologized to the American people. So it's hard to second guess when it involves a personal indiscretion or weakness more in the political arena and in the legal arena, if you can admit it all in the media so that it doesn't dribble out drip by drip, 
that's the best strategy. Right, but he was impeached for, uh, and he did lose his law license, right, for sub, for committing perjury and suborning perjury. And I know he disagrees with the accusations, but I mean... Well, he paid a big penalty, yeah. personally and politically. We had five, uh, uh, ten Republicans in the United States Senate voted to acquit him. That was a pretty big number to oppose impeachment, but he still paid a personal price. Yet his last day in office, 65% approval rating. The American people were able to differentiate a personal weakness from a high crime and misdemeanor. How do you think um, scandals have changed in the era of social media? Big time. My clients still are facing uh, crisis management advice, and social media has made the fraction of a sentence that a bad fact can circle the world much more malignant and therefore you have to be much more out in front than my usual advice. We used to have a news cycle when I was at the White House. Right. And it's just been in recent years because of social media, there's no news cycle, there's a fraction of a second cycle. So you have to do your best both as a lawyer, which I am, and as a crisis manager to try to get all the facts quickly and try to get in front of the story before it dribbles out a little bit at a time. Do you think that social media and the more partisan cable news organizations uh, have made it easier to rally defense, though, on the other hand. Yes, there's an echo chamber that didn't exist when I was at the White House 25 years ago or even in recent years, and certain cable and certain news sites echo misinformation between themselves, and you can't break into that echo chamber. So it is a much different world, and even cable and television crisis management, you have to try to get into those echo chambers with other people who are within those echo chambers. Lanny Davis, I hope I never have to hire you, but if any (laughs) of you out there ever get in trouble, Lanny Davis is the man. Thank you so much for being here. The CNN original series, United States of Scandal, premieres Sunday night at 9 Eastern, only here on CNN. Coming up next, the comments from Jared Kushner this week that may give us a glimpse of how Donald Trump, his father-in-law, could treat his relationship with a controversial world leader. Stay with us. Welcome back to the lead in our world lead White House um, in our world lead. While House Republicans are focused on whatever money Hunter Biden and the president's brothers may have garnered from connections to the then vice president, Joe Biden, an FBI informant has now been charged with lying about the Biden's ties to the Ukrainian energy company Burisma, a charge that undercuts the whole Republican effort. Meanwhile, there is also some next level sleaze and grift going on right in front of our eyes. Jared Kushner, who ran Middle East policy as a sort of shadow secretary of state during the Trump years and the son-in-law of Donald Trump, had advised the president at the time, Donald Trump, to cozy up to Saudi leaders, including by not protesting Saudi brutal human rights violations. He often defended Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, whom the U.S. says ordered the brutal murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Khashoggi's body was cut into pieces after he was killed at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul in 2018. Now, shortly after leaving the White House, Kushner's equity firm was reportedly given $2 billion by the Saudi's royal fund, which is controlled by MBS. Earlier this week, Kushner was asked by Axios about the U.S. intelligence report, which holds MBS responsible for Jamal Khashoggi's murder. Do you agree with the DNI? Do you or do you believe that report? Are we really still doing this, Dan? I mean, yeah, okay, absolutely. So, so I have not seen the DNI report that the Biden administration put out there, right? And number two is, 
Look, I know the person who I dealt with. I think he's a visionary leader. I think what he's done in that region is transformational. I think he's done a lot of things that are in America's interest, and I think he's done a lot of things that have made the world a better place. And I understand why people you know, are, are upset about that. I think what happened there was absolutely horrific. But again, our job was to represent America, to try to push forward things in America. Are we still doing this? Yes, Jared, we're still doing this. The DNI report is public. It has been public for three years. I'll post it on X, the platform previously known as Twitter, so you can read it for yourself. But just in case you're watching, the report from the Director of National Intelligence says, quote, we assess that Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and that's the man you called a visionary, that's the man who gave you $2 billion to invest, he, quote, approved an operation in Istanbul, Turkey to capture or kill Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who wrote for the Washington Post. Now, the kill team included thugs who worked for a group led by a close advisor to MBS who says he makes no decisions without MBS's approval, as well as seven members of MBS's elite personal protective detail. That was the kill team. And remember, Jared, this happened in 2018 when Trump was in power, while you were still in power, power to which you were not elected. Kushner also said that he followed all the ethics rules and there were not any conflicts of interest in the deal with the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund, or PIF. Were you at the time concerned about taking money from PIF? And if you could do it again, would you have done it at all differently? Yeah, so uh, PIF is one of the most prestigious investors in the world. Every fund manager is trying to work with them. I think what's happening in Saudi Arabia is one of the most exciting transformations that we're seeing now in the world of, of a country. And if you ask me about the work that we did in the White House, uh, for my critics, what I say is point to a single decision we made that wasn't in the interests of America. Okay, I'll point to one. How about letting an ally kill a Washington Post columnist, Jared? That seems like an obvious answer for anyone who hasn't been given two billion reasons to ignore it. And we are still going to talk about this, especially on a day when we're talking about other world leaders taking out other dissidents. We should note MBS was asked recently if he would keep his $2 billion with Jared's fund, even if Jared's father-in-law is elected president in November. The answer, of course, was yes. All of it happening right in front of our eyes. We are standing by for Donald Trump to speak after the ruling today in the civil fraud case against him. We're going to be right back after this. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.